approved podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're right. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello. Hello, Howdy. Stuart. Hi. Uh, and Paul's not here, so we no, do have some not. We do have some co-hosts tonight. And I'll let uh, Chris, why don't you do, introduce yourself first? Um, I'm Chris Chu, the resident uh, MedPeds guy on the podcast. Yeah, but you're not a resident. You're an attending physician. I am not a resident. At- the attending MedPeds guy on podcast. <laughs> okay. And I'm at Cash Like Said, State. As he's dancing on camera. <laughs> Okay, and we do have a resident physician, a rising chief resident with us. Oh my, you're going to make me blush. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm Cyrus Askin. I'm here uh, joining, the, joining the folks tonight. Very excited. Cyrus, is this your fourth, fourth podcast with us, I believe? Oh man, I think you're right. I can't believe it's been four, yeah. yeah. Tied. <laughs> four. Cy- Cyrus is kind of our like pulmonary correspondent, even though his first episode was on dizziness, but the rest have been all pulmonary related. And I imagine that means you might be interested in pulmonary critical care, Cyrus. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's possible. Okay. (laughs) All right. And Stuart's joining us for the intro, but he was, he, he informed us that he was playing Minecraft with his children and that's why he couldn't be there to join us for the interview with Dr. Friedman. Yeah. I figured out how to make a flower pot. Yeah. Okay. Actually, Cyrus, do you want to set up the what we talked about with Dr. Friedman, and then I'll I can I can go through his bio. Yeah. Sure. Um. So you know we had uh, uh so Oren Friedman, he's a, a pulmonary critical care guy over at Cedar Sinai, and he came on the podcast to talk a little bit about pulmonary embolism, and and so what you're what you're getting ready to hear about is basically a little bit about the pathophys of pulmonary embolism, and then really uh, a nice overview of the diagnosis and some of the diagnostic tools. And then we rolled into some of the therapeutic options um, and, and things that uh, internists should be aware are out there, kind of more things that, that really belong in the realm of critical care medicine. But then also, you know, a little bit of a discussion on what you as an internist have uh, at your disposal. So I think he did a really great job of giving us an overview on, on PE, but, uh, but definitely opened the door to, to maybe a future episode uh, uh, getting into some more of the nitty gritty. Yeah. And, and it really focuses on tr- how to triage patients, which patients, how do, how do you size up a patient and determine how sick this patient really is from their pulmonary embolism and how to risk stratify. And we'll, we'll have to do another episode where we sort of, this is such a big topic where we kind of get into some of the more uh, using things like the clinical prediction rules and, and some of the questions that we were having on social media. So we, we had to sort of prioritize how we were going to spend our time here. Um, so Dr. Oren Friedman, MD, is the Associate Director of Cardiac Surgical of the Cardiac Surgical Intensive Care Unit within the Division of Cardiothoracic Surgery in Senior Sinai Heart Institute. He earned his medical degree from Tufts Medical School in Boston and went on to complete an internal medicine residency at Tufts New England Medical Center. After residency, he pursued fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine at New York Presbyterian Hospital, where he went on to take a faculty position. He has also held a faculty position at 
Weill Cornell Medical College and has delivered numerous lectures, both stateside and abroad. Not only is Dr. Friedman an impassioned teacher and devoted clinician, but he has also helped develop many new critical care tools, including the use of point-of-care echo and ultrasound, advanced airway management, and various new procedures. He has also worked hard to advance the practice of therapeutic hypothermia in the post-cardiac arrest patient. Above all, Dr. Friedman's greatest interest is in the diagnosis and management of pulmonary embolism. Before leaving New York for California, he was instrumental in co-founding the Cornell PE Response Team, one of the first such multidisciplinary teams dedicated to enhancing treatment of high-risk pulmonary embolism. At Cedars-Sinai, Dr. Friedman is a co-founder and co-director of the Cedars PE Response Team and the co-chair of the Cardiac Arrest Committee. He is also involved in the International PERT Consortium, where he currently serves as the co-chair of the Educational Committee. We are excited to have Dr. Friedman on air to discuss diagnosis and management of DBT and PE for the internist. It's going to be great. Well, guys, I'm going to peace out. So PE out to you guys. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is <laughs> offensive. Horrible. Here we are tonight with Dr. Oren Friedman. Hi, Dr. Friedman. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We are excited. We've, uh, we've been planning this for a very long time, right, Cyrus? Oh, yeah, it's definitely uh, an episode I've been wanting to get together for quite some time now. Before we start talking about pulmonary embolism, I, I have to ask you if you could give the audience a one-liner kind of so they can get to know you, and it doesn't just have to be medical stuff, kind of hobbies and stuff like that, too, if, if you have any. I'm a uh, 40-year-old resuscitationist. I'm saying it that way in particular. Uh, I do have a focus in critical care medicine. It was actually originally pulmonary and critical care medicine, although now I work in cardiac surgery. Um, but uh, I have three young children, and I love to go hiking. I just moved to Southern California recently and uh, been having a great time out here. Excellent. How old are the kids? So I have uh, a seven-year-old, five-year-old, and a three-year-old. That's good. Our our last guest uh, di- got the ages of his children wrong, so uh, I'm glad you know the age of your children. <laughs> you put me on the spot. Just whatever you do, don't ask me the birth date because if my wife listens to this podcast, I'm in big trouble. All right, Chris or Cyrus, did you want to ask him anything? Yeah, I got I got a question. Um, since uh, Stuart's not here, I'll ask him a Stuart type question. If you were anticoagulant, which one would you be? And you don't have to explain why. <laughs> You know, I'm tempted to pick something uh, sort of exotic here. You know, it can't possibly be unfractionated heparin, you know, boring. It's definitely not aspirin. Uh, Why don't I just pick Kangralore just because it's a cool name? I'll say that. I'd like to be a little Kangralore. I don't even – what's the – is that a generic or what is that? (laughs) Oh, I got you there. All right. (laughs) We use a lot of Kangralore in cardiac surgery. It's uh, one of these very potent IV antiplatelet agents that has the advantage of being very quick on and quick off. So it's useful for patients that are bleeding or having procedures. Uh, So you basically can replace a patient who might otherwise have needed Plavix. Um, You know, we used to use Tyrofiban. Now we're using a lot of Kangralore just, again, because you can kind of turn it on, turn it off. Nice. Good. Okay. Good answer. Uh, Cyrus, how about you? Any questions? Why don't we go with uh, what's a favorite medical app? Uh, I'm sure you know. I'm sure you've got one that you use more often than others. What do you like to uh, What do you like to use? So it's not quite an app, sure. and uh, this is not going to be that original. But you know, boy, good old up to date. You know, we can <laughs> we can dog on that because we always say residents shouldn't use that as the basis of their presentations. But you know, when you're dealing with an ICU patient and you need answers quickly. 
Uh, I mean, there's nothing like it. Any favorite books you have? Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be related to medicine, but any any book that you could recommend to the audience? Well, there's a book I'm reading now, which I haven't finished, uh, The Righteous Mind. You know, it certainly made its circles on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, I, I honestly can't uh, I can't advertise it enough. What a unbelievably fantastic and fascinating book in terms of how people think, how people make decisions. And, you know, we live in very politically divisive times right now. And uh, if there's anything that's going to kind of help you understand why each side can feel so passionate about the same issue, um, it's this book. Um, it, it's just this amazing thing. You know, it turns out that when we make decisions about things, we actually go with this gut instinct and emotion first, and then afterwards, we come up with a rationalization. It's not the other way around. We are not rational human beings. We don't think things through, and that's you know, the same reason why if you're going to argue with somebody about facts, why it could be so frustrating when you see, well, the data proves otherwise. The same thing in medicine. People go with what they feel is right in their gut, and then they construct all the facts sort of after the fact in a, in a post hoc way. It's, it's this fascinating way, and it, it applies for politics. I think it honestly applies for medicine as well. That sounds very much in line with a recent show we did on clinical reasoning and uh, some of the stuff. we've. This has come up a, a lot on the show, like the book Thinking Fast and Slow is also um, in that sort of realm. And yeah, there, it's I'm fascinated with that whole topic in general right now. So good oh, thinking fast, yeah, thinking fast and slow. Great book. Yeah, also fantastic. Yeah. Well, for interest of time, I think we should move into the into the main topic here. And Cyrus, I'm going to let you start us off. If you wanted to go start with the case, or if or just whatever question, Cyrus, I'll leave it in your hands. Oh man. Okay. So um, I'll start with the kind of intro to the case, and then I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. So uh, with respect to the case, so here we are at Cashlack Memorial. Uh, and we're getting there. It's all. It's we're getting to July, so it's July first in the Cashlack Memorial ED. Uh, and so you've got Mrs. P. She's a 49 year old female with a history of hypertension, and she's coming in with some vague chest pain. She's got some shortness of breath, and she's also feeling like she's got a high heart rate. The uh, the ED intern down there again. It's July first. Um, he's about to enter the room and begin his assessment, but he catches you and he decides to curbside you and ask you, "Hey, what do you think might be going on with this lady?" And so you, as the you know seasoned internist, um, think through your differential and, and PE crosses your mind. And so that's kind of the way I'd like to open the case. But to backtrack a little bit, um, I'd like to start a discussion just about PE and DVT and the pathophysiology. And specifically, I'd like to ask if there's a functional difference or a pathophysiologic difference between DVT and PE, other than the fact that obviously a PE is in the uh, pulmonary vasculature. Well, first, I'd like to say that, of course, PE crosses my mind because I'm a <laughs> PE doctor. So I think yeah. everything's a pulmonary embolism. So uh, you nailed that uh, for sure. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the, the rough thing about pulmonary embolism is its symptoms and signs overlap with so many other symptoms and signs of many other common diseases. So we not only... Uh, we not only overdiagnose them in the wrong patients and find little small clots that we don't know what to do with, we actually underdiagnose them in the very sick patients. But that being said, um, so the pathophysiology of DVT and PE. Um, so honestly, I think they are best thought of as as the same disease with different sort of manifestations or different, uh, I would say, you're along the timeline in a different way. So PEs come from DVTs. That's where they're born, and then they grow up to become pulmonary embolisms. So not all DVTs become PEs. 
Um, about half of PEs, if you go ahead and you scan their legs, you'll find DVTs. The other half, you don't find them. So then people say, well, then where did it come from? And the feeling with that is uh, that most likely most of the clot broke off and now it's all in the pulmonary circulation and that's why we no longer see it. Um, but in any case, you know, obviously it goes without saying that the manifestations of them are are quite different. Obviously, leg swelling, phlegmasia, post-thrombotic syndrome, these are all features of DVT. And, uh, pulmonary embolism has a whole other host of pathophysiologic consequences. You know, so, you know, People generally don't die of a DVT. The disease we all worry about is a PE. We treat DVTs not only to prevent the leg symptoms, but to prevent them from growing up and becoming pulmonary embolism. Uh, if you like, we could talk a little bit more about what happens physiologically with a PE. I'll, I'll leave that up to you guys. No, absolutely. I think that would be really useful. You know, so when a clot breaks off and it obviously lodges in the pulmonary arterial circulation, um, it causes a rise in pulmonary vascular resistance. And the rise in pulmonary vascular resistance is not linear. So the more clot you get, you in fact have an exponential increase in vascular resistance. And when this happens at a very low level, your right ventricle may be able to compensate. And if your right ventricle can compensate for that obstruction, you're generally in pretty good shape. As the clot burden increases and the resistance or and the afterload in the right ventricle in, uh, right ventricle increases, the right ventricle begins to start to fail, and that's where all the problems come into play. So your left ventricle can accommodate wide changes in afterload. Your right ventricle it's thin walled. It's meant to be uh, pumping a large volume of blood through a very low resistance and low pressure system. So as that afterload increases on the right ventricle, it is, it is more prone to be able to you know, have dysfunction and to fail. As the right ventricle begins to fail, you have a lot of complicated things that are happening all at once. So if the right ventricular cardiac output falls, the left ventricular cardiac output must fall. They're in series. There's just no other way around it. If the left ventricular cardiac output falls enough, you start to, be, you start to develop systemic hypotension. But there's a secondary hit that happens to the right ventricle that's actually really important physiologically. And it has to do with coronary perfusion. So the right ventricle is actually prone to get ischemic even in people who don't have right, uh, right don't have coronary disease, and the reason is, is that the right ventricle is used to being uh, perfused both during systole and diastole because the pressures are actually quite low. So if your systemic blood pressure falls and the intracavitary pressure in your right ventricle ventricle rises, coronary perfusion will fall to the right ventricle, and the right ventricle will become ischemic. The right ventricle becomes ischemic, the cardiac output falls even further, and you begin to have this death spiral. And that's why people with pulmonary embolism, when they sort of come over or get pushed over this uh, ledge, they can get sick very, very fast. They can, uh, and so once they become hypotensive, the risk is of them developing ischemia and getting sick very, very quickly, and then proceed, and then progressing to cardiac arrest uh, becomes more likely. Now. In general, we worry about the hemodynamic, the cardiac output, the right ventricular manifestations of a pulmonary embolism as being the uh, the scary you know, factors that we want to avoid. And so when we worry about people getting sick from PE, we worry about them um, having a low cardiac output state, having right ventricular dysfunction. And we tend to worry a lot less about what's happening from a respiratory perspective. And, and that's really because most people don't die a respiratory death. You know, most people are not so severely hypoxic or having such gas exchange abnormalities that that really dominates their presentation. And that's not to say that people with PE can't have that. It's just that that is 
unlikely to be the cause of why someone with a pulmonary embolism dies. And that's actually why the definitions for pulmonary embolism really get at the hemodynamic manifestation. So when we talk about massive, submassive, or non-massive PEs, we're not really talking about clot burden. You know, there really aren't uh, provisions for hypoxia and, and carbon dioxide exchange problems. All the provisions have to do with what's hemodynamically happening as a consequence of that pulmonary embolism, and, and that's the reason why they're that way. Warren, I wanted to step back, and let's say that we're, we're seeing this patient in the emergency department, this, this 49-year-old lady. We're going to get some test that tells us that she has a pulmonary embolism, and then like sort of starting to, how do we get to the point where we're, we're sort of starting to triage this? So, Cyrus, do we have this built into the case here where we, we sort of get the, the diagnosis here? Yeah. So um, a little bit later, so you, you know, you finally do get a call from that busy ER intern and he asks you to evaluate the patient. And so you review the chart and you see the EKG is notable for sinus tac with a heart rate of 108. There's an elevated D-dimer and there is a, a CT uh, pulmonary angiography that was performed. It is concerning for a near occlusive left main PA thrombus. Um, the labs are notable, are notable excuse me, uh, for a detectable troponin uh, and an elevated pro BNP. Um, and then the ER intern tells you that he and his staff performed a bedside echocardiography and there may be some flattening of the interventricular septum. But then he goes on to tell you that the blood pressure has been stable for the last several hours at right around 135 over 80. And, and Oren, I wanted to say that we, we threw out some tests here. So I think we said we had an EKG, a D-dimer, the CT pulmonary angiogram, and um, we had a, a, a BNP and a troponin. Are there any other labs or tests that, that you use when you're, when you're working up someone with PE? Or is, and, and then maybe you can walk us through how you interpret what, what Cyrus gave us with this case. Uh, yeah, so that's a great start. I mean, the patient you're describing is a is a very uh, you know kind of a classic example of what we would call either a submassive pulmonary embolism or the newer European Society of Cardiology guidelines would call that an intermediate high risk PE, and we can talk about what that means. Um, so, you know, I think one of the first things uh, when you've made the diagnosis of PE that you should should be going through your head is where does this person fall on the spectrum of, of severity? And, and you know, that doesn't necessarily require memorizing a whole lot of uh, different you know, uh, criteria and memorizing a lot of algorithms. It just requires having a sense of what makes somebody a higher risk than somebody else. Um, probably out of all the things you mentioned, I think a couple of things come to mind right away. So, Heart rate is actually an excellent barometer on how sick someone is with a pulmonary embolism. Um, the higher the heart rate, the more I'm worried. You know, obviously that does factor into a very commonly uh, used test, which is the uh, Simplified Pulmonary Embolism Severity Index Test, the SPESI score. Uh, it actually has heart rate as part of it. A heart rate greater than 110 gives you a point on the SPESI score, as well as some other factors. Um, but heart rate, I think, number one, should make you, know, should make you uh, should give you some pause there. Um, you obviously mentioned the blood pressure, which in this patient, uh, you said was actually normotensive. And I think that deserves a little bit of mention. So certainly the patient that is hypotensive, certainly the patient that is in shock automatically goes into a category of, uh, you know, massive PE. And I should be extremely worried about this patient. And I'll take it a step further, meaning I, I am not going to be able to get away with heparin alone. This patient needs something more than that. And as soon as that is happening, 
honestly, you almost freeze in time. Well, you shouldn't freeze. You actually should progress in time, <laughs> but freeze in the sense of stop trying to calculate risk factors. You know that patient's severe. You know that that patient has a massive PE. You got to move forward there. There's no point in calculating SPESI scores. There's no point in even uh, waiting for troponins or anything else. Now, most of the patients are not going to be like that, right? A good majority of them are going to be non-massive or in this case, so you obviously showed us a, a sub-massive patient. So this patient has normotension, but has echo evidence of uh, right ventricular dysfunction. So let's talk a little bit about an echo. I, you know, I think that, you know, it is undeniable how unbelievably helpful an echo is in risk stratifying a patient with pulmonary embolism. And that doesn't mean that I think that every single patient, every low risk patient needs an echo, but anybody who's beyond low risk should have an echo. And the reason is, is we may change our management. And that that's, that's sort of a newer thing. I think, uh, Probably a decade ago, you might have gotten an echo, and whether or not it showed a little bit of right ventricular dysfunction or not, it probably didn't change what you did. And I think those days are those days are mostly gone. So uh, I don't feel the need to get terribly fancy with how I interpret my echo. When I look at the right ventricular dysfunction, I'm either asking myself, is it mild? Is the RV just barely dilated? Is it severe? Is the RV markedly dilated? Is there interventricular septal bowing, which occurs because the RV pressure is actually exceeding the LV pressure on systole or or diastole? Um, And um, specifically, if there is underfilling of the left ventricle, which is very worrisome. Um, Other features you may see are McConnell sign, which is a very specific sign for pulmonary embolism, but doesn't necessarily speak to the severity of the PE. Um, and then I would say is the RV just moderately dysfunctional, which is somewhere in the middle. Maybe it's slightly dilated. Maybe the function is a little bit reduced, but maybe not be severely reduced. And the reason I keep it simple is because, uh, it just helps you put the whole patient together and decide what you're going to do. So that speaks a little bit to the echo. Now you mentioned a troponin. So I think things like troponin or labs rather like troponin and BNP, um, certainly, when you look at studies of pulmonary embolism, they mark out a group of PE patients that have uh, worse 30-day outcomes, worse short-term outcomes. Uh, so, you know, a patient who has gotten to the point of their RV now becoming ischemic, as we talked about previously, and now is leaking troponin, is probably sicker than a patient who does not have an elevated troponin. But that being said, I don't make or break a decision about PE based on a troponin or a BNP. That's one of those nice little things to say, oh, look at that, it's elevated, or look at that, it's not elevated. But And you, you kind of put it into the general mix of things. But uh, I make my decisions based on a lot of other features, echo, clinical picture, and some other things that we should mention. Um, you know, one of the easiest things to just do is what you, when you walk up to the bedside of a patient with a PE, is you just take a look at them. And, you know, this, this does take a little bit of clinical experience, but, you know, over time, a clinician should be able to tell you that is a sick patient, that's a patient who's not sick at all, and that guy over there is somewhere in the middle. Um, and I put a lot of faith into the, into the patient that doesn't look well with a PE. Even some of those people, even if they're normotensive, or actually in many cases, even if they're hypertensive because they're stressed and their catechols are raging, you know, you're, you should be worried about that patient. So a patient that doesn't look well, you should be very, very worried about it. And yes, the heart rate is sort of an objective measure of it, but that subjective measure, I, I don't want to deny that that is a huge, huge factor when you're seeing a sick patient. 
Now, if you like, I think there's several other features that I use to risk stratify a patient. Should we should we speak about that now? Or yeah, I was going to ask about like the CT. I saw there was the L- RV to LV diameter by CT, and is maybe some other things like that that you might mention that might be helpful to the audience, uh, people working in hospital medicine. So I'm, glad, I'm actually glad you bring that up. Uh, people forget that the CT isn't just about the clot. You actually get a quick view of the heart. You actually get a free view of the heart. In fact, so you know there's good studies to suggest when the RV size is greater than the LV size on a CT scan. Well, that's that's showing you probably what an echo would show you that the RV is dilated and that patient's going to do worse. So, and that you know especially becomes important in institutions where it may take some time to get an echo or for practitioners who aren't you know savvy with doing their own point of care ultrasound. So. Um, Immediately when you see that CT scan and you see the RV is dilated, already you're starting to put that patient into a higher risk category. Um, so that's an important one. You know, I think it does deserve some mention. Uh, you know that the amount of clot burden on a CT scan, even though we all go around preaching that it's not about the amount of clot, it's what it does to your hemodynamics. You can have a patient with a tremendous amount of clot that has normal hemodynamics that may do okay. You can have a patient with less clot that is obviously more hemodynamically unstable, and that's a sicker patient. But that being said, there actually are clinical trials that show large, bulky, central clots. Overall, these patients tend to do worse. So that's not a make-or-break-it thing. So in that in the same way that a troponin is not a break-or-break-it. However, you know, uh, that should turn up your radar. Uh, so high, you know, a lot of clot burden, uh, dilated RV, your radar is already, already, already going up. So we spoke about the, uh, we already spoke about the echo. Um, you know, I do think that it's worth, uh, you know, either either formally calculating an SPESI score or at least just being mindful of the things that are in that SPESI score. And, you know, that's one of those scores, uh, you know, that, that pretends a worse outcome with PE. And in fact, in the European Society of Cardiology Guidelines, you know, they divide uh, what we would previously have called submassive PEs. They, they call them the intermediate risk category, and they divide them into low and they high risk. And uh, part of the uh, you know way you get bumped from a low risk to a high risk is having a positive SPESI score. So just to run through those very quickly, that would be age above 80, presence of cancer, history of cardiopulmonary disease, heart rate greater than 110, systolic blood pressure less than 100, oxygen sat less than 90%. So What's actually nice about it is it actually puts some additional um, blood pressure, heart rate criteria in there that go beyond, um, you know, some of the other uh, previous guidelines. So it just helps put you into a higher category. Um, so SPESI score is something to think about. Um, uh, we mentioned an echo. We mentioned uh, the CT scan showing RV dilation. We mentioned the elevated troponin. Um, another thing that makes me a bit more concerned about a PE patient is the presence of residual DVT. And there is pretty good evidence that if you have residual clot in your lower extremity, so a higher overall clot burden, uh, that those patients also do worse. Um, so if I were to have seen a patient who I might be on the edge with in terms of their clot burden, their RV dysfunction, and how they look clinically, and then now find that that patient, in addition, has a large uh, you know, clot extending from their iliac down through their common femoral vein into their superficial femoral vein, I might be more worried about that patient as they didn't have that clot. I guess that's my question is like, how often are you scanning for DVTs after, um, after you find the PE? Because I think traditionally I've been always taught like it doesn't add too much to, to, um, to the treatment. So I, I don't always do it, but it sounds like they're, they actually might make different, make a difference in your management. 
So I would say it might sometimes make a difference. So, you know, I'm biased. So a lot of the time, once I've already been called for a PE, people have just done the battery of tests. Uh, sometimes probably overkill, but frequently there's already an ultrasound of the legs. Sometimes that's because somebody did an ultrasound of the legs before they even thought to get the scan. So it's, it's kind of having like a freebie there. The information's already there for me. Um, these days also an echo is also frequently ordered. So I, I'm, I'm, uh, much less often having to ask for these additional tests because I'm more often seeing patients that they're right. already done in. Now, right, if you happen to have gotten a scan and you haven't got a CT scan, you haven't, you know, ultrasounded the lower extremity, should you do it? Well, I say you should do it if the patient is already, you've already got other reason to think the patient might be higher risk. And you're starting to kind of like uh, field through the information and decide, am I going to do something uh, more aggressive with this patient? Maybe in that already intermediate high-risk category, uh, that might just push you over the edge in that particular patient. Now, it doesn't make any sense to do it in the patient that uh, you've already decided you're going to escalate beyond anticoagulation. It also probably doesn't make sense to do it if you already have convinced yourself this patient does not need anything more than anticoagulation. They are fine. So that would be, you, you mentioned kind of the low-risk patients. So you said, how are you determining, like you said low-risk patients probably don't need an echo. So who would, what would a low-risk patient look like and 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 which patients? I, I think we should start to talk into treatment after that because we we have just a couple minutes left with you here. So the what how, what does a low risk patient look like? Just so the audience can fi- file that away because we we've talked about the high risk. We've talked about sort of this intermediate risk, like the patient who doesn't have a massive PE. We've talked about submassive, but not the uh, lower risk routine PEs that we see a lot of. Okay, so my low-risk patient is a young patient who comes in and says, you know, for the last couple of weeks, I've been feeling more short of breath. Uh, you know, maybe the ER uh, jumped to getting a CT scan. They found a couple subsegmental pulmonary emboli, so you already know that the clot burden is pretty low. You get called to see this patient. You walk in the room. Uh, she's sitting up in a chair, flipping through the channels, uh, asking the nurse for a sandwich, saying, when can I get out of here? She's not on oxygen. She's not tachycardic. She's normotensive. Um you know, no history of cardiopulmonary disease, no history of cancer. The patient doesn't have any bleeding complications. Um, this is the kind of patient that you're actually thinking, I might be able to anticoagulate and discharge home. Okay. Um, another useful test, just to, I don't have to list all the criteria, but, you know, for the viewing uh, audience to look up, is called a, it's called the HESTIA criteria, H-E-S-T-I-A. And that's actually a list of criteria that allows you to, you know, there's at least studies to suggest that it allows you to safely send these people home. And a lot of it are very practical things, like does the patient need oxygen? Uh, you know, uh, are they on IV pain medication? Are there other reasons to be in the hospital? But it's a, it's a very nice practical list to allow you to safely say that person can go right home. Which patients, when when you decide you're going to keep a patient with a submassive PE, how are you deciding like which therapy that you're going to give this person when they're going to be staying in the hospital? And then eventually I'd like you to tell us how you decide when a patient's ready to leave the hospital with a PE. Okay. So I think uh, it, it's a, it's a good thing to explore because I think, you know, the, the most uh, complicated management in PE has to do with this submassive population. I mean, no doubt that's the one that uh, even people who do sort of PE for 
for a uh, you know for a career sort of sweat over. <laughs> so you know, when do you decide to you know intervene on a patient with a submassive P? Well, first of all, I think already I, I kind of would rather use the uh, the uh, terminology intermediate, lower, intermediate, high. So, okay. and the mo- the majority of the intermediate, low risk patients. So these are people who yes, they have submassive because their RV is dysfunctional, but they're normotensive, but their SPESI score is negative, their troponin is negative. Um, Certainly in my own criteria, they don't look unwell. You know, the majority of these people are going to be completely fine with anticoagulation. But all of those earlier risk factor things that I said push a patient into a higher risk category, that's at least when I begin to mull over whether or not I'm going to do something beyond anticoagulation. And I like to divide it simply into the kind of patient that I'm seriously worried is going to deteriorate. You know, I am seriously worried that this is the patient who's going to, you know, there's going to be a cardiac arrest at three in the morning and it's going to be that patient that was diagnosed with a submassive P at, like, you know, two in the afternoon and they just deteriorated. Um, those, again, are the kind of people that look terrible. They're tachycardic. Maybe they don't quite meet the criteria of massive because their systolic blood pressure is not less, you know, less than 90, but maybe their systolic blood pressure is 104, and they're normally a little bit hypertensive. You know, they're just right on that border. Um, By the way, I'll throw another one in there because I forgot to mention it earlier. Elevated lactate. Um, You know, if someone happens to have sent the lactate in the ER and it's elevated, boy, you should be worried about that patient. Hard to imagine they'd send a lactate in the ER. (laughs) (laughs) Look, great test, great test. I don't send it on all PE patients, but if it's elevated, boy, you better be worried about those patients. I've seen some of those patients uh, go downhill. Another one that I forgot to mention, syncope. Syncope makes me really worried about a PE patient. It makes me worry that at some point in time, they had enough uh, right ventricular airflow tract obstruction that their cardiac output was low enough that they actually passed out. So those kind of patients I'm a little bit more worried about. But, you know, they're the patients that I'm worried about that, like I said, that are actually going to progress to massive PE, that their hemodynamics are going to deteriorate. And those are the kind of people that I want to do something more than anticoagulate. There's another group of patients that I also get aggressive on. And I think this has been something that's changed a lot in the more recent years based on the availability of things like catheter-directed lysis and the availability to get more aggressive in a safer way. And that's the, I'm a younger patient with a big clot. My right ventricle looks pretty sick. Um, maybe when you look at me in bed, I don't look awful. I don't. I, I look like somebody who, if you anticoagulated me, I'm going to survive. I'm going to make it. There's no way I'm not going to make it out of the hospital alive. As soon as I get anticoagulation in my veins, I'm going to survive. But I'm worried that that patient with a big clot burden with already serious exercise intolerance, with a pretty sick-looking right ventricle, is number one going to be in the hospital for a long period of time, okay? Uh, we can argue whether or not we should be more aggressive based on just length of stay, but that, that's something that I that I do feel strongly about. And I'm also worried that six months down the line, is this person going to get back to going to their spin class? Are they going to be running uh, like they like to do? So the young, active patient with a lot of clot, a sick right ventricle, very tachycardic, you know, uh, a lot of exertional dyspnea, those kind of people with, with, by the way, very low bleeding risk factors, I mean, they've got no cancer, they have no active bleeding, they've got no recent surgery. Those are the kind of patients I'm already also thinking I might want to be more aggressive about that person. So I, I split it into those two categories. How do you choose between IV unfractionated heparin, low molecular weight heparin, the DOAX, or or other agents like Fondaparinux? Do you have favorites or how how would you recommend the audience think about that? So this is what I would recommend. Um, 
you know, low molecular weight heparin definitely has its advantages, right? You know, it, it's more predictable. You're more likely to get to a therapeutic effect. You're going to get to that therapeutic effect faster. Um, I think it's reasonable to start low molecular weight heparin on people you already have a high clinical pretest probability before you've proven the disease. So I think that's totally, totally reasonable. Um, the time and place to start unfractionated heparin, on some of those higher risk patients, I like to start unfractionated heparin because... I'm already thinking I'm going to take them to the next procedure, which might be, or actually very commonly will be catheter-directed lysis, and it simply becomes a little bit easier to manage the heparin around the procedure. Now, honestly, we may be, you know, a lot of my colleagues, we may be overly cautious with this. In other words, there's probably plenty of safety in giving low molecular weight heparin and still proceeding to catheter-directed lysis. You know, but if I think I'm going to have to pull the trigger on something more, or I'm likely to do that. Those are the people I'm doing unfractionated heparin. And I probably should extend that to also if I'm thinking I'm going to have to push systemic thrombolytics or, you know, I'm really worried about that patient. Also a whole lot easier to start, uh, you know, IV heparin drip rather than low molecular weight heparin. Um, again, very, very low risk patients. You know, that might be a NOAC and you're out the door, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that type of a thing or DOAC and you're out the door. Okay. And then, uh, so we should probably talk a little bit about, so when I talk about doing more, what do I really mean, right? So, yeah. um, so obviously systemic thrombolytics still has a role. You know, if there's a crashing, dying patient in front of you, if you have a massive pulmonary embolism patient in front of you and they don't meet uh, absolute contraindications to systemic lytics, there is still absolutely a role for systemic lytics. I think if you're in an institution that may not have the availability of catheter-directed therapies or endovascular therapies, and you have a very, very sick intermediate high-risk patient that you're worried is going to deteriorate, that is also a place and a role for using um, systemic thrombolytics. So absolutely, that still uh, should be on the uh, on the cards there or as one of your options. Um, but for the majority of the other patients I discussed um, with intermediate high-risk patients or uh, you know, the young patient and also the patient that I'm worried is going to deteriorate, what we're really talking about here um, most commonly is catheter-directed thrombolysis. So yes, there is a whole host of different endovascular tricks and tools and things that are being developed, but most commonly what we're doing uh, most commonly, we're doing catheter-directed lysis. And what does that involve? So that involves going to either an interventional radiology suite or in many hospitals, that's an interventional cardiology sheath, uh, suite. Um, you either get a sheath placed in your uh, femoral vein or sometimes in your IJ. It can be either 6 French, can be up to 10 French. Uh, that's That stick can happen on anticoagulation, so that does not require an interruption to unfractionated heparin. And that involves placing infusion catheters directly into the clot. Um, clots are often bilateral, so that means bilateral infusion catheters. If you have unilateral clot, obviously you can bury one infusion catheter into that clot. And uh, giving a directed TPA right into that clot over some type of infusion. Now, there's whole different whole, uh, whole different ways of doing this. There's whole different uh, multiple different combinations of uh, all to place. I would say... Uh, several years back, we were doing a milligram an hour for 24 hours, so a total of around uh, 24 milligrams of uh, TPA. Obviously, you can do the math. That's a whole lot less TPA than the systemic dose, which is 100 milligrams, or the standard dose is 100 milligrams over two hours. We've now actually cut that infusion down to uh, more commonly in the 12 milligram total dose of TPA, and uh, sometimes we honestly go as low as six milligrams. Nobody knows how much TPA it takes. <laughs> All we're finding is that it probably takes a whole lot less than we previously <laughs> thought. Um, and the idea is, 
I'm giving it directly into the clot. So the local concentration is theoretically higher. I'm also, uh, you know, because I'm, you know, burying my catheter into the clot, I'm sort of uh, uh, avoiding the problem that I'm giving it, say, systemically and that the TPA isn't getting into the clot because the area is so obstructed. And, and by the way, that's just a little bit more theoretical. But, you know, these are the reasons why we think we can get away with a whole lot less dose giving the TPA into an infusion catheter. Um, now, there's a whole thing uh, about whether or not you need an ultrasound-assisted infusion catheter, the ECOS catheter, or you need a regular infusion catheter. And I think the jury is still out on that one. Uh, nobody knows whether the addition of a catheter with ultrasounds in it that is technically supposed to help break down the clot and help disseminate the TPA, whether those offer you any advantage, we don't know. Uh, it's possible that a regular infusion catheter is just as uh, just as good. Um, now we, you know, these days we can do things to remove clot endovascularly, and uh, it's kind of uh, sort of the dawning of a new age. I mean, it's, it's all kinds of interesting new devices are coming out. Um, uh, you know, the, probably the two most common ones are something called a flow retriever device, which uh, involves a deployment of these discs that help suck, kind of pull clot back into a catheter. There's another device called the penumbra device that is also used in uh, endovascular therapy for stroke. Um, it's more like a suction catheter. So it's an eight French catheter that you bury into the clot and it just basically sucks clot out. Um, there's been great results with both those devices, and there's also been many uh, experiences where the devices don't seem to work to get clot out. So, you know, it's not 100% reliable, but I would say the role for that is in a patient in whom you are very worried about them, um, but you find that there's a contraindication to giving even the very, very low doses of TPA in a catheter. Like, you know, for instance, a patient, yeah, I had a patient once who had a recent diagnosis. She was young of a glioblastoma. Uh, she actually had a little bit of microhemorrhage. She looked pretty awful. She was tachycardic. Her right ventricle was sick. Um, you know, so we deployed the flow retriever device and we actually removed some clot endovascularly. But the neuro ICU folks told us, don't even think about touching her with even, even a milligram or two <laughs> milligrams of TPA. So that might be an example. The other example might be somebody in whom you're worried about bleeding and you want to cut down the dose of TPA. So maybe you really want to get down lower than that six milligram dose. You might do a little bit of a hybrid approach where you try to get some clot out with a with a clot retrieval device and uh, then maybe leave a catheter behind and give a very, very low dose of TPA. As far as the endovascular therapies and everything that you're talking about, is there a place, uh, well, how's the evidence behind that? And if the audience wants to find more resources about the evidence behind those therapies, can you give us just like a brief, brief response to that? So the evidence behind catheter-directed therapies and specifically catheter-directed lysis uh, is continuing to grow. Um, there are some randomized control trials as well as, uh, some small observational trials. And although the numbers are low, um, the evidence suggests that when you use these catheters and infuse TPA, you can do it number one, very safely. In fact, um, out of any of the clinical trials, um, the rates of hemorrhagic stroke are, are, are zero. In some of the trials, there's actually no major bleeding, um, and what it does is it can rapidly um, improve pulmonary arterial pressures, improve right ventricular performance, and it does that in a way that is superior than heparin alone. So I look at this as a proof of concept. They can go in. Uh, they're going to they're gonna be safe. They're going to have low bleeding risk. You're going to be able to reduce RV to LV ratio, reduce echo evidence of RV dysfunction. Um, and uh, the trials that I might point people to would be the uh, Ultima trial. 
the Seattle 2 trial, um, the Perfect Registry, uh, which is a registry of catheter-directed lysis cases. Those are some of the more recent trials um, on the topic uh, that I'll, I'll refer our view, viewer audience to. And I, I would add that the experience with it um, you know, is growing, and I can tell you that you know, it works. Uh, patients symptomatically feel uh, incredibly better when they get catheter-directed lysis. Uh, we've also been able to take some very, very sick patients um, and get them through the procedure safely with an improvement in their hemodynamics. And I think uh, probably mostly because of the ability to use much lower doses of TPA to an effect, we've been able to take patients who are high bleeding risk, um, you know, in fact, even patients who have elements of active bleeding be able to get them through this procedure safely um, without them having an increase in the amount of bleeding. And so I think that uh, that experience has uh, been quite uh, reassuring. That's like a great overview of, of like sort of the, the more advanced therapies. And I know you only have a couple minutes left. So I wanted to just see if we can ask you, are, is anybody getting IVC filters these days? Is that something that you're that you're seeing placed uh, for for some of these patients? You mentioned like a patient who has has already had a PE and then they have a large clot like up to their iliac and the patient looks sick. Um, are, are any of these patients still getting IVC filters? You know, there's a whole lot of debate about IVC filters. Uh, sometimes, you know, people get people get emotional about this. <laughs> people feel so strongly about yeah. it. You know, there's throwdowns, <laughs> and uh, it's amazing to you know to get back to the book of the righteous mind. We have we have these instinctive impulses <laughs> that these filters should perform better than they do. Um, you know, and that they should be used in more situations uh, than than they are used in. You know, look, the bottom line is the evidence is not great. Uh, in fact, it's less than great. Most of the evidence suggests that if there is a reduction in pulmonary embolism with an IVC filter on top of anticoagulation, it's probably small. It burns out on the low in the longer term trials, and there's probably an increase in the likelihood of lower extremity clot. Um, there's some trials that actually don't suggest that there's even that much reduction in pulmonary embolism, although mechanistically speaking, there technically should be. So I think, look, the majority of the role or the best role for an IVC filter still remains in somebody who cannot get anticoagulation. Putting an IVC filter in somebody who can get anticoagulation is not wrong, I think, in some situations, but you just got to realize that the, the data and the evidence just doesn't back us up here a whole lot. I think if you got a super sick patient and they got a lot of residual DVT, um, it's not crazy to put an IVC filter in. And if you put the IVC filter in that patient because you're worried that in the you know intermediate period, if they reembolize, that their RV will not be able to take that second hit, well, then great. I don't think you did something wrong there. Just go back and get the thing out. So the problem <laughs> <Okay>. is <laughs> we stick them in there and everybody forgets about them. Yep. You know, you'll see patients in the hospital, right? Have a CT scan and they're, oh, hey, look, there's an IVC filter in there. And then the family tells you, oh, I think 10 years ago they put some little basket in his, in his vein. So that's the problem, right? Because long term, yeah, those things migrate. Struts penetrate the IVC. You get, I've seen patients with IVC, you know, clots extending all the way down to the renal veins and ending up in renal failure. So, you know, just get the things out of there and then we won't have that debate. I mean, I, I would just sort of add that, you know, in the massive PE category, there are some observational trials, um, such as this trial by Stein in American Journal of Medicine in 2002, or sorry, 2012, that suggests that 
Look, in massive PE patients, there's some signal that people who get IVC filters may be in better shape than those who don't. So if you have the patient who's in shock and you're pushing TPA and that sort of thing, or or you're you're doing catheter-directed lysis on a shocky patient, yeah, you can put an IVC filter in. Uh, and I don't think you're I don't think you're wrong there. Once you've decided, okay, this person's an intermediate uh, low risk person or this is an intermediate high-risk person, we've treated them, how do you decide when the patient is ready to go home from the hospital and, and out into the world? So, you know, I, I honestly use a lot of the same criteria we use with other patients. So, um, you know, are you off oxygen? Um, is your blood pressure okay? Is your heart rate okay? Um, have, we, have we proven that uh, your symptoms are at least heading in the positive trajectory? And I guess the one thing that's a little bit more specific uh, for a PE patient is, uh, you know, can you get up and move around? So, you know, there there are PE patients that uh, deceive you a little bit by looking pretty good like when they're in bed. And uh, they get up to use the commode or something, or you catch them on that one day when they're coming back from the bathroom and you realize, boy, they are short of breath and tachycardic and they're having to stop and pause. You know, that's not the kind of patient I send home. Um, and, you know, I actually meant to mention that as a criteria for getting more aggressive. And that's, you know, if you have a patient who you have decided that you're either on the edge or you initially decide that, you know, on the edge of getting more aggressive or you initially decide that you don't think they need more aggressive treatment and you put them on anticoagulation, if you've done a 24-hour trial of anticoagulation and their symptoms are not better or they're still incredibly breathless when they get up and they walk, you know, and by the way, do it very carefully and watch them, <laughs> those are the kind of patients to get a little bit more aggressive. Uh, but, to, you know, to get back to your point about who can be discharged, I mean, that's one thing you'd want, um, you know, to happen before they leave the hospital. And Maybe I'll add one more thing is, you know, shore up or shore up, I should say, their discharge anticoagulation plan. So, uh, you know, whatever you decide to use, I think honestly these days, unless people have contraindications, um, you know, using a NOAC is, uh, you know, or, you know, is going to be the easiest thing for most patients to to take and to take reliably without monitoring and that type of thing. Um, but whatever your choice of anticoagulation that you're going to discharge them on, Make sure they can get the prescription. Make sure yeah. that the prescription is going to get filled. <laughs> you know, if you, if you want to use more molecular weight heparin, yeah, you know, make sure they know how to, you know, someone's going to give them the shots. Make sure that they know how to give themselves the shots. You know, these are very practical things, but, you know, people literally leave the hospital after big PEs and then you find out, oh, I, I, I couldn't get, uh, I couldn't get my Xarelto approved or, you know, I, I, nobody was there to give me my Lovenox shot. I mean, you want to avoid that for sure. Wonderful. This uh, this has been amazing, uh, Cyrus. I know you wanted to to ask him about the pert the pert team, so we can plug that. But the, yeah, I, th I can't thank you enough. Yeah, it's been great. It's definitely been awesome. I did want to ask about the pert team. I did also very briefly, if we could, uh, want to address the question of the kind of incidental OMA when it comes to PE. And I don't know that we mentioned that specifically, but I know that Dr. John Ryan, who we had come on talk about pulmonary hypertension a few weeks ago, he actually reached out and, and asked the question, um, Dr. Um, Warren, what do you do with PEs that we're finding now that, you know, years ago, because of the CT scanners at the time, we weren't finding, you know, how do you decide what to just not treat? Yeah, the, the issue of, well, in particular, the issue of what to do with an isolated subsegmental pulmonary embolism is uh, really tough. And honestly, you know, we, we probably don't have enough evidence right now to guide us strongly 
in either direction. There are some studies that might suggest that if you were to find an, you know, an isolated subsegmental clot you know, on a CT scan, um, that maybe those patients don't need to be anticoagulated. I would say if you're ever going to decide not to anticoagulate a PE patient, um, that's tough. <laughs> and I think you really need to do your homework on that patient. Um, you know, you've really got to make sure that their hemodynamics are okay. You've got to make sure that their right ventricle is okay. You've got to make sure that they don't have a clot in their legs. You know, it's, it's truly got to be a completely uncomplicated, isolated pulmonary embolism that, you know, also know that you're going to be able to follow up that person closely, make sure they don't develop symptoms. Absolutely. So I think, which is slightly different than I just came across a PE that, you know, looks real, but it was, you know, completely unexpected. The person had no symptoms, uh, you know, um, this happens a lot on COPD patients who get CAT scans. It happens a lot, certainly on lung cancer patients. And, you know, bottom line is, you know, if you see a low bar clot or a segmental clot and you know it's real, you know, you, you can't ignore it. I mean, it's it's a significant enough of a disease that when you find it, um, it really should be treated, even if uh, they don't have a lot of signs and symptoms. I think, again, the only PE to maybe consider uh, not anticoagulating, you know, and that, that has to be done very, very carefully. And I kind of encourage everyone to review. There was actually a recent meta-analysis on this. I think everyone should take a look at. Um, and that needs to be done very, you know, very, very carefully. Good. I'm glad you asked that question, Cyrus. That was a great question. Definitely wanted to get that in. And then, um, you know, to, to get back to the PERT team, I know, uh, I know Oren, that that's a, that's a big, uh, a big thing that uh, is very near and dear to you. So, um, you know, as internists, some of us have access to this, some of us don't. So for those of us that aren't familiar with a PERT team, can you tell me a little bit about, uh, what that is and, and kind of what the role of one of those teams would be at a, at an academic center, for example? So here's the idea behind the PERT team. So, uh, you know, I threw out a whole lot of different options for PE care. Uh, in fact, <laughs> I kind of feel like I regurgitated a whole list of PE stuff. Um, and by the way, I didn't even mention VA ECMO and surgical embolectomy and all these other <laughs> options, which, which are still out there. So the fact is, there's a lot of decisions to be made. Um, the idea behind a PERT team is let's get everyone in their respective disciplines that touches on pulmonary embolism, and put them all together in one place in one team. So, you know, PE is a diagnosis that spans a lot of fields, right? Pulmonary, critical care, cardiology, interventional cardiology, interventional radiology, cardiothoracic surgery, uh, hematology, uh, emergency medicine. I could probably keep going, right? So there's, there's a lot of people that like PE or are excited about PE and, 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 you know, can kind of consider themselves experts in various aspects. So, you know, if you're, uh, you know, an ER doc or you're an internal medicine doc and you're worried about this patient because they're intermediate high risk, you could either get on the phone and try to get cardiology to do an echo for you. Uh, maybe you're going to get the pulmonary or the critical care guy to give you a general assessment of whether or not they think this patient needs something more. Maybe they say, oh, go ahead and call the IR guy because he's going to maybe want to do a catheter procedure. Or wait a second, maybe we should just alert the cardiothoracic surgeon in case the patient decompensates. Next thing you know, you're making 10,000 phone calls. Uh, <laughs> and then the patient's deteriorating in the meantime, right? Nothing's getting done. <laughs> right. So the idea behind a PER team is, you make a call to the team. The team has all the necessary members. The team discusses the case with each other, and they come back to you with an expert recommendation. I would love to uh, 
plug the PERT Consortium meeting. It happens every year. This year is in Nashville. It's going to be great, June 22nd, June 23rd. You go to pertconsortium.org on the website. It's going to give you information. Um, I went last year. You know, the speakers are engaging. They're excited. The topics are uh, apropos. Uh, they're really modern. They're relevant. Um, great, great conference. Um, you know, and it's uh, really attended by people who are members of uh, members of PERT teams from all over the country, as well as people who may be interested in forming a PERT team at their own hospital and want to learn a little bit more about the disease. Thank you for everything tonight, Orin. Uh, any any final words or take home points for the audience before we let you go? Well, I will tell one funny anecdote. I said, oh, you know, I, I was uh, mentioning to my um, my admin as- assistant and I said, yeah, hey, there's, there's all this attention on Twitter about this uh, PE podcast. A lot of people are tweeting back and forth. And she said, yeah, who? Your mom? Well, that's cold. I know it was cold, but it was well played. And uh, I thought it was pretty hysterical. Actually, on that note, now I, I, I'm, I'm going to have to invite my mom to listen to this podcast just because of that she's not on twitter but uh i will invite her onto the podcast nice yeah excellent a lot of a lot of people's moms listen to our podcast so that's uh (laughs) 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 all right all right thank you all right listen guys thanks a lot happy to do it anytime This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. I heard it was delicious. Please uh, check out our show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. If you want to reach out, you can send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Dr. Cyrus Askin. I'm Dr. Christopher Chu. And I am Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good night to all the Pauls out there. Good night. <laughs>